You're listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming online at kboo.fm. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with the requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in-station activity at KBOO, meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The Engineering Committee meets on the first Thursday of the month at 7 p.m. Please visit our website at kboo.fm to verify if a meeting... When the farmer comes to town with his wagon broken down, the farmer is... Tune in to The Dirt Bag every second Wednesday of the month at 11 a.m. Learn to grow your tasty fruits and vegetables in your home garden. There is a monthly garden stumper, calendar of gardening events. You can even call in with your gardening questions. That's The Dirt Bag every second Wednesday, 11 to 12 a.m. That's on K-B-O-O Portland. Portland. Listen, Listen, laugh, laugh, learn. The farmer is the man that feeds them all. Tune in the fourth Monday of each month at 11.30 a.m. to Voices for the Animals. We discuss the latest news and trends in the animal world and the role of activism surrounding the issues of animal rights. That's Voices for the Animals at 11.30 a.m. on the fourth Monday of each month on KBOO. Hi, this is Pat Matheny. You're listening to Radio KBOO here in to you, the nine to fiver, just making your way home. To you, the all night driver, out in your cab alone. To you, waiting for lunch break, as the minutes drag so slow. Take courage, turn the volume up, it's Labor Radio. Hello, this is Lane Ponce, your host for KBOO's Labor Radio Show. This evening, we have a guest, Mr. Tom Hastings, Dr. Tom Hastings from uh, the Conflict Resolution Program at Portland State University. Good evening, Tom. How are you today? I'm just fine. How are you, Lane? I'm good, and I'm glad that you're here with us. You also have several roles that you play in the uh, peace community. You're the director of Peace Voice, the secretary for Oregon Peace Institute, and you're always busy doing things for peace. So tell me about your directorship for Peace Voice. Well, Peace Voice, um, I, I started that, um, gosh, like more than 15 years ago when it became apparent that Americans in, across the broad spectrum of America, uh, they were, Americans were believing the two big lies that the Bush and Cheney folks were telling in order to, uh, to convince us that they should invade Iraq. Uh, the two big lies, of course, were that there were uh, that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction and that you know, he was going to give 
probably give a nuclear weapon to Osama bin Laden. Uh, those of us in the peace community and pretty much everybody internationally understood that that was a pack of lies. Uh, but the American public swallowed that. Uh, we had big peace demonstrations uh, in Portland, but across the country, they weren't nearly large enough uh, or consistent enough to thwart the invasion. Uh, and um, the, <laughs> around the world, uh, there were much larger demonstrations. Uh, so any, any given day uh, leading up to this in late 2002, early 2003, there would be uh, on a weekend, there might be uh, 300,000 people in the streets of Rome or London uh, protesting this and, you know, maybe 4,000 in the streets of New York. Well, we did pretty well in Portland. Uh, we had about, uh, we broke the state record for uh, political um, uh, protest events three times in a row. Uh, that record held until the 2017 women's march uh in the, the day after trump was inaugurated and the, that women's march just blew the lid off of of all of it it was the best organized uh public protest in oregon history by far uh, and best attended by far but the lies that that uh, convinced the american public to not raise enough uh objection uh since they were believed by the american public i thought well how do we get the message from the peace community, which we all understood. I mean, when when uh, Colin Powell told that pack of lies, uh, especially uh, the you know the lie about the weapons of mass destruction uh, in the UN building, um, we were just lit up. It was like nobody's going to believe that. So what what I decided to to do was to try to figure out like, okay, how do we get voices from from the peace community? into places where they normally just consume Fox News. Uh, how, do we, how do we get that to happen? And I lived in the country in Northern Wisconsin, Northern Minnesota uh, for more than 25 years. And I did a lot, I, I have a graduate degree in journalism. I've done a lot of writing and I sort of um, got to know several editors of small town newspapers and I started to understand sort of how they thought and what they were would be willing to publish, um, and that and so I reached out uh, to um, basically my fellow uh, peace instructors and peace activists and said, "Look, you know, I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to do this. I've got the emails of some editors. Uh, send me your commentary pieces, and I'll see if I can get them published." And it started slowly. Uh, we we uh, got off to a very slow start, but now we reach uh, an estimated potential readership of about 16 million readers a month. And I put out uh, about one commentary or one op-ed, um, well, five or six a week, usually one a day for every workday. Uh, and in this, in the average piece gets placed in about uh, eight, uh, small town newspapers around the country. Uh, not the same ones every time. And so it's kind of like spreading the spreading the message around uh, to every state. Uh, and, you know, I'll, I'll write a piece one morning myself and, and uh, by the afternoon, it's already up in some small town paper in Alaska and maybe someplace in uh, 
North Carolina, for example. And a couple of days ago, and, and I only do maybe one or two a month myself. Uh, so the director of uh, Peace Action, which is uh, the biggest peace group in the United States with about 200,000 members, uh, he writes uh, for Peace Voice sometimes. Uh, my favorite uh, group of, of writers, because they've got the expertise and the time, are retirees from what I do, which is teaching. Uh, and so the professors who are emeritus, um, I hit on them <laughs> a lot. And and they, they, do, they know a lot, plus editors look at the tagline, a little, you know, sort of identific, uh, identifier at the end of the piece uh, to see if the source is somebody that they regard as credible. And when somebody is a professor or they run a big uh, organization, it tends to have more clout and they tend to be, editors tend to be more willing to use that. If, uh, if somebody has no credentials at all, I can create an argument uh, for the editor uh, um, based on the quality of the piece. So I have a little intro that I send to the editors too. Uh, so we've, we've kind of honed this over uh, some years. Uh, I have a web manager. I have enough of a budget to pay her. Uh, she keeps the website spruced up. <laughs> and, um, and that's, that's kind of our ongoing thing uh, to try to you know, really focus on, on places where, uh, where they, they really do get a lot of conservative news in the, and I know from a, being a product of J schools uh, myself, I, I, I have, like I said, I have a, a graduate degree in journalism. And as I was earning that degree, I was also a teaching aide or, a, a, you know, TA, a teaching assistant for the journalism professor. So I really got a chance to sort of get a, a, a feel for how these uh, journalism students, even at the undergraduate level, are thinking and they they're so full of ideals uh, when they when they graduate with their journalism degree and sometimes they will you know work for a big outfit and and uh, uh, and maybe they will somehow someday be able to live out what is a uh, sort of one of the standard American dreams for uh, for writers which is I'm gonna own my own small town newspaper and so sometimes uh, these students with relatively liberal or even radical orientations for peace and justice will wind up in a very red conservative area, but um, sort of nursing their dream, owning, owning their, uh, their own small town newspaper. The small town newspapers are, of course, um, an endangered breed. Uh, as we know, big conglomerates uh, try to move in and, and uh, buy up a lot of them. And so I, I just continue to kind of like work with that as best I can. Every once in a while, I'll, I'll um, make a friend with an editor uh, who uh, doesn't, doesn't necessarily own a whole string of newspapers, but will, for example, be the main editor uh, for, let's say, eight or 10 small town newspapers that is owned by some corporate owner far away, but a local person uh, will like something that I send, uh, 
whether it's by me or, or one of the uh, many writers, and they'll put them in all the newspapers that they control. So that's kind of fun. It's like uh, coming in the back door of some big corporation uh, with our message of peace and justice. Uh, and when I say justice, I include everything that we uh, write about with the environment, with climate chaos, etc., cetera, uh, because that to me falls under the rubric of environmental justice. Uh, so, so that's kind of like an ongoing thing. Um, I do it for most of the year as a, uh, just as a volunteer. Um, when I don't have a paycheck in the summer, then I take a little paycheck from, from Peace Voice, but uh, for nine months of the year, it's, it's my, uh, it's one of my volunteer things. Yeah. Well, Tom, do you um, have a website you can share in case there's people that want to submit things or check out on what's available on your website for Peace Voice? Now, the best way to do it is just to send me an email. Uh, you can always uh, uh, go to peacevoice.info, and, and that is the website, uh, but there's no place to submit an editorial there. Uh, the editorials are, are all sent to me, and then I edit them, I format them, and send them out. Uh, and my email address for anybody who's interested is PCW. It, it stands for Portland Catholic Worker because I have been a, a Portland Catholic worker for a lot of years. PCWTom at gmail.com. Okay, thank you. Well, that must keep you fairly busy shoveling that around and you know juggling shoveling everything how about your job as a secretary of the oregon peace institute what what's their focus and yours yeah that's that's another volunteer opportunity for me and i've been doing that for about almost 20 years uh and the oregon peace institute has uh well peace voice is a project or a program of uh opi the oregon peace institute uh, the Oregon Peace Institute itself was founded back in the 1980s, long before I ever came to Oregon. Uh, and, and it's sometimes it's been very big. Uh, we're a, a relatively small uh, nonprofit. We have um, people on our board from around the state, uh, including, for example, Jose Orozco, who is a, a peace philosophy uh, professor at OSU in Corvallis. Uh, we've got um, an international board of people who live in Oregon. Uh, so we've got a, a one woman who is Italian, Nigerian, Jamaican, and now she's also an Oregonian uh, and, uh, uh, and married to an Irishman. And then we've got um, uh, a man from uh, the Gambia in West Africa, uh, who is also now an American citizen and an Oregonian. So we have a very diverse board, which is, uh, it's, it's um, I don't know, it's, it's a very rewarding group to work with. And so we, we collaborate. Uh, so for example, one of our board members is one of the very few African-American um, women who is a physician's assistant. And she founded her own nonprofit called Right to Health. She works with uh, anti-racist healthcare equity uh, activist, and she's she's a member of our OPI board as well. So we collaborate with them, uh, and when you have um, you know sort of an interlocking board of directorates uh, with you know um, nonprofit and advocacy groups, 
that are that have overlapping uh, value affinity and, and areas of interest, then you can you can see paths forward uh, that can amplify each other's efforts, and that's what we try to do. Hmm. Well, that sounds pretty interesting also. And how long has that, you said it started in the 80s, 1980, and it's been plugging along all this time with getting bigger and better and more interesting people involved. And is there um, is there an access point for volunteers who are interested in this kind of work through the Oregon Peace Institute? Um well, if you took down my email before, you can always use that. And the, the uh, Oregon Peace Institute has a website, uh, of course. I'm not the web manager of that either. Uh, that's done by one of our board members who volunteers to do so. Uh, and I think that he also is the one who um, uh, sort of mines the store with the email account as well. So that email address, I believe, is on the website. Uh, but if if somebody sends me an email again, pcwtom at gmail dot com, I can get that to uh, to him. He coordinates our volunteers. Oh, okay. So there is a volunteer coordinator that has specific things that volunteers can do for that institute. Yes. Very nice. All right. And one of your other mini hats that you wear is being a professor at Portland State University in the conflict resolution program. How long have you been doing that? Since 2001, spring of 2001, it was the first time I taught a course at PSU. It was, uh, I moved to Portland just a little bit before that and, and started teaching uh, that spring. Oh, that must be just about the time I tuned in. I didn't realize you were that new in the area when I started signing up for a conflict resolution program. Yeah. You were yep. one of my first professors during the summer. Yep. Might have been 2002 for me. I can't really remember that long ago. So what kind of uh, classes do you teach through that program? So as you know, uh, Lane, because you do have a master's degree in our program, uh, we started uh, and for many years uh, were a master's program, a standalone master's program. Uh, and then in 2013, um, I um, basically took a summer to focus on creating a proposal for an undergraduate major and minor uh, and kind of push those uh, through the ascending levels of of um, approval that you need to start a new program at Portland State and got that through uh, five, five such levels uh, and um, that took a while and so our first uh, classes that could be used to apply to an undergraduate degree in conflict resolution uh, came on board in uh, 2014, uh, and I've been uh, coordinating uh, that uh, pretty much ever since. And that's that's still what I do, and I focus on uh, the undergraduate program almost exclusively uh, at this point. Um, and so we'll we'll um, we'll see how that goes because, uh, as uh, your listeners probably know, higher education is under uh, duress right now. Uh, across the board, across the country, um, uh, COVID really hit higher education very hard. And uh, Portland State is right there with the trend lines. And that means uh, a pretty severe decline in enrollments. Uh, we're still, I regard our program as still very healthy, but uh, we are under scrutiny along with uh, several other smaller programs. 
uh, and uh, we'll see how that goes. I mean, it, it's um, it's something that I, I stressed in a meeting yesterday with one of the deans. I said that in 1982, uh, um, the entire global directory of peace and conflict studies type degree programs was two pages, two sides. Uh, we were a very tiny field just starting out. And now we are uh, somewhere between uh, 450, depending on how you count it, and 600 programs around the world. We're a growth field. Uh, so we've got these two competing trend lines of our field of uh, peace and conflict resolution, peace and justice studies, uh, peace and global studies, where we have a lot of different um, sort of affiliated names uh, that um, sort of rely on whoever starts the program, or whatever college or university they're in. Uh, so we have this, you know, robust field, and we're getting more doctoral programs. Uh, there's uh, there's one in Winnipeg in Canada. There's one in uh, uh, Nova Southeastern in in Florida. There's one at Kennesaw State. So as any discipline uh, begins to have doctoral programs, they get um, closer and closer to being a discrete discipline as opposed to being an interdisciplinary field. Uh, so this progress is going along at the same time, higher education is taking a lot of hits. So we'll see how that goes, uh, Lane, but um, I remain, even in my 70s, I remain optimistic. I'm glad to hear that. Today we are listening to Mr. Tom, Dr. Tom Hastings from PSU and a number of other places he's just talked about. You're listening to Labor Radio on KBOO. Well, Tom, the other thing that you uh, indicated you'd like to try to do in our conversation is to defend democracy. How would you go about doing that? And how would you suggest our readers get involved, our listeners get involved? Well, the I mean, there's so many ways to do it. I, I teach a class at uh, Portland State called Participating in Democracy. <laughs> and what it really is, is how do we defend democracy from the grassroots? Uh, and so day one, uh, I stand at the board and I just, I say to my students, I will be your scribe. And I want to know uh, what you, day one, uh, I want to know all the ways you can think of that we can participating uh, participate in democracy. And I'll just stand there and uh, basically just keep writing as long as the ideas come in. Uh, there are some classes that have been so creative, uh, I, I will get, I'll run out of room on the board. I mean, I'll get 40 or 50 ideas uh, before things start to dry up and, and uh, you know, they're still thinking about different ways. Uh, so, so, of course, your listeners know uh, many, many ways. And, of course, KBU programming is full of great ideas uh, for doing just that. Uh, and and the, the question that I ask my students after I'm done uh, taking this list of ways that we can participate is, as I say, so how many of these ways require you to be a citizen of the United States of a certain age? <laughs> There's like um, one, and that's to vote. And the, the other ways can be done, you know, and I mean, I'll, I'll put out Greta Thunberg as an example. Greta Thunberg was, she started participating in American democracy when she was 12 year old Swedish girl. Uh, and without, you know, setting foot on our soil or being an American citizen and, and being a child. Uh, so there are really very few restrictions on the vast majority of ways 
that we can participate in and thus help to defend our democracy. And the, it, the ways can get more and more robust uh, as we go along. So one of my other one of my other little roles, uh, for example, is I'm certified in courts uh, to be an expert witness to testify to the efficacy and the advisement of what is called the necessity defense for nonviolent civil resistors uh, who engage in uh, civil resistance that attempts to stop a greater harm, and it's called sometimes it's called the competing harms defense. So for and and I've used it myself as a defendant. Uh, um, so I will tell the judge or the jury, uh, you know, the classic case uh, is you are walking down the street and you pass by a house with, uh, it's got an outside fence and a gate and there's a no trespassing sign on it. Uh, you look uh, past the gate and you see smoke uh, coming out of a window you see flames in another window and you see a child in a third window and you're not going to pay much attention to the no trespassing sign or the, to the fact that you may need to break the lock on the door or the gate to get in that house and rescue that child and no jury or judge would convict you of trespassing or of property damage if you did that because the harm that you have prevented is so much greater than the harm that you committed and so this necessity defense is actually beginning to catch on. As I said, um, we were able to use it uh, back in 1996 uh, when my co-defendant and I went and dismantled part of a thermonuclear command center uh, and did many thousands of dollars worth of damage to it, um, literally send it crashing to the ground and then turned ourselves in uh, with the express, express purpose of bringing this, putting the system on trial. And so for, from my point of view, uh, we were involved in defending democracy doing that because as I continue to tell judges and juries to this day, you may think that the, these defendants who did this nonviolent action, uh, whatever it was, uh, for example, I, I, I testified in, in Spokane uh, on behalf of a retired Lutheran minister who sat down on a railroad track uh, to stop a coal train from coming through as a climate chaos resistance action. And what I said uh, in that case, uh, which is similar to what I say uh, all the time, uh, is it may look like this defendant was playing the outside game, was, was not trying to get involved in the system, was just uh, doing uh, some kind of anarchic uh, against the system action. But that's not the case. Uh, not only was this defendant doing something that was entirely altruistic with no possibility of any self-aggrandizement, uh, but this person was trying to get into the court system because this person knows that, you, that the executive uh, branch of the government has failed to do the, anything uh, important. The legislative branch of the government has failed to do anything of significance. And so here, in this case, he's turning to you in the judicial uh, branch of the government. This is a co-equal independent branch of the government. And so <clears throat> we're, trying to, we're trying to go inside 
and play the inside game with you. We're appealing to you to make this judicial branch of the government stop these bad harms. And, and so this is part of what I teach uh, is like, what laws can we use? Uh, whether it's international law, whether it's uh, in the in the case of in our court case, we use uh, the American military's own rules of engagement to say this particular facility had no role in the defense of the United States. And in fact, and we brought in expert witnesses uh, technically and uh, um, in terms of technology to uh, testify on this, uh, that it was a system that could only be used in an offensive sense. It had no defensive role whatsoever. And we were accused and charged with sabotage. Uh, and we were acquitted by a jury of basically 12 white rednecks from chainsaw and gun country uh, in northern Wisconsin. We were acquitted of sabotage because they proved that we didn't interfere with the defense of this country. Okay, Tom, you know, we're just about through with our uh, interview for the day. And I appreciate your enthusiasm and the information that you've shared with our listeners at KBOO. So I think we're gonna wrap up now. And um, I just wanna remind listeners that KBOO has labor radio news every Monday from 6 to 6.30. So we'll close off. Lane Ponce, your host for Labor Radio News. Thank you, Tom Hastings. Thank you kindly. Thank you for listening. Good night. To you, the nine to fiver, just making your way home. To you, the all night driver, out in your cab alone. To you, waiting for lunch break, as the minutes drag so slow. Take courage, turn the volume up, it's Labor Radio. Howdy everybody, I'm Rose Maddox and I'd like to tell you that you're listening to KBOO in Portland, Oregon, the station that I listen to when I'm in the area. Uh -huh.